Well, thank you for allowing me to be here today. It is uh, an honor. You have no idea how much of an honor it is for me to be uh, with you today. Uh, I've been coming to the northeast of England and now for about 17 years, uh, and it is an honor to come. I've been coming about once every couple years for the last 17. Uh, our church, the Heights, has had a partnership in this area of England uh, for at least that long, if not longer. Uh, there's been a season that Mike Taylor was in our church. Uh, we've had about 22 gap year workers, youth workers that have come from our church into the northeast of England over the last year, several years, and it is a joy to be with you. Every time I come to the northeast, I feel like, I feel like I'm coming home, and I, and I really mean that sincerely. I love it here. Uh, I love everything about it. I love the weather. I can't tell you how much I love the weather. It is beautiful. Uh, it was boiling hot in Dallas when we left, and so to come here in this nice crisp air was beautiful every day. I'm going to move here. Are you kidding me? This is so great. Uh, I was encouraged by Ali's testimony a few moments ago. Uh, what you don't know is that Ali actually came to me uh, probably about a couple months ago and, uh, and, and shared a lot of the same things that she shared with you, that God was just really doing something in her heart and calling her to do more. And so she came to me and said, what else can I do in the church? And uh, she said, I'm, I'm off this summer. And so what she's basically done is served in our missions department in the summer as an intern, uh, free, free of pay, volunteer, and it is incredible to see how God has used her, and I look forward to seeing how God is going to use her, and then also the rest of the students that we brought with us this week. And so I do ask that you would pray for us as we do our work this week and as we volunteer and build relationships uh, with kids, and that we pray that we would have gospel conversations and pray that you would pray and ask that you pray with us as we have those conversations. So I understand that you are in a series on the heroes of faith, uh, really rooted out of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, I, I, this morning, I am not going to focus on one of the main characters that we see in Hebrews 11, but really more I'm going to focus on a small minor prophet. And as I think about Hebrews 11, uh, I, I think about the verse in 32 that says this, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah, uh, about David or Samuel and the prophets. And it just says, and the prophets. And so there's many of them. And so today we just want to focus on one of the many of the prophets. And we have the major prophets and the minor prophets. And today we're going to look at one of the minor prophets. It goes on to say, it goes on to say that who, these folks, who through their faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised to shut the mouth of lions, to quench the fury of the flames, escape the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, I don't know about you, but man, when I, when I read that, that's the kind of God that I want to follow. And I don't know about you, but you may be thinking, 
that may be true for the giants of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. But oh, how I long to have that kind of experience with our father. But what I want to tell you this morning, and I hope you understand the same power that was given to the men that we read about in chapter 11 in Hebrews is available to us today. And I believe that. Do you believe that? Absolutely. The same faith that the men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 have is available to us today. So I hope that as we read about and know about the Hebrews uh, or or the, the heroes of faith, that it's not something that we think is unobtainable or something that we can't be a part of. Because I want you to know that the same God who created this universe, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the scripture, The same power that worked within the men and women we read about in the pages of the Bible is available to us today. It's not distant. It's not foreign. It is here and it is now and it is available to us. And so as we think about and we read about Micah specifically today, I want you to think about, hey, this truth that was given to Micah is true for me today as well. It was relevant back then, but it's also just as relevant today, right? And so as we look about my, uh, Micah, let's think about this. Now, before we get into Micah chapter 6, and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn your scriptures to Micah chapter 6. I want us to make sure that we understand who we're talking about when we talk about the prophet of Micah, right? Micah, his name, Micah, just simply means who is like Yahweh. And that's what the name means. Now, Yahweh, that is the Lord who we serve, our creator. That is his name. Think about the time that Moses was staring at the burning bush. Remember that time? Reading that time in the scripture? When Moses was staring at the burning bush, God was saying, Hey, Moses, I have selected you for a specific purpose. And I want you to take my people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses just simply asked the question, Who who am I that you should send me? Remember that question? And you remember what God's response was. Moses, you tell them that I am. And you tell them that Yahweh is my name. I am is all sufficient. And then he says, Yahweh is my name. Did you know that Yahweh is our Lord's name? Whenever you look in the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capitalized letters, that is Yahweh. And that is his name. So when we look at the prophet Micah, Micah is just the meaning of Micah is one who is like Yahweh. One who seeks the Lord above all else. And so what we know about Micah is that he was a prophet that was called to to deliver prophecies to uh, the Israelites that were in the southern kingdom. We, we know that Micah served under the kings of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. We know that he saw uh, uh, the fall um, uh, of, of Judah that day. We know that he, he prophesied in that time. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is a very specific prophecy that he gave the children of Israel that is as relevant then as it is today. 
And so if you have your chapter, your Bible, turn it to uh, Micah chapter 6. And we're going to look at the entire passage of scripture of Micah Micah 6, the entire chapter. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1 and it says this. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people and he is lodging a charge against Israel. Now what we need to understand as we begin to look at this passage of scripture is that this prophecy, the setting that Micah is given this prophecy in is one of a court case. So think of a court setting. And this is the setting, the backdrop of the prophecy that's given. Now, let's understand who the players are. In this court case that Mike is delivering this prophecy, we, we see the defendants are the children of Israel, the Israelites. We see that the plaintiff is none other than God himself. And we see that the judge also is God himself. It's a neat trick. When you're the creator of the universe, you can be the plaintiff and the judge. All right? You can do that. We see also that the jury, read, read in the scripture. What, who's the jury? Who is the case being delivered? Uh, who is hearing the case? What's well, the mountains? Isn't it interesting that this case is being heard in front of the mountains. Now, why would the mountains be the jury in this case? Now, in America, we have a saying, and I don't know if you say it here uh, in England or not, but we have a saying that, oh, I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear that conversation. Does that translate? Have you heard that? You understand that? Uh, so think of it, think of it this way. Think of the mountains as the big, massive, giant fly on the wall. So the entire life of the children of Israel and their relationship corporately with the Lord was seen by the mountains. The mountains saw it all. Now, I love studying the Old Testament. I love studying the children of Israel. And the reason why I do is because I think when we study the children of Israel, it's almost as if I'm looking at a mirror. Because what is true for the Israelites corporately is also true in my life individually. See, there were times that the Israelites were walking in complete step with the Lord, in close fellowship with him. Following what he asked them to do. Worshiping him above all else. And there were other times that the Israelites completely turned their back on the Lord. And wanted to do their own things and followed their own ways. And when I think about that, I'm like, that is like me. That's me. Because there's times in my relationship with the Lord where I am close to him. I am connected to him. I am walking in fellowship with him. But there are other times that my relationship with Christ is stale. And God is distant. Or I should say, I am distant. And it's like I'm looking at a mirror when I look at the children of Israel. So what we need to understand about Micah in this time is it really is a time of affluence for them, for the Israelites. 
but it was also a time of just spiritual decay. And it was a time where the children of Israel wanted to do their own thing, wanted to live in their affluence, wanted to to follow what they wanted to do, wanted to appease God and make him happy, but did not have a lot of time for a close, intimate relationship with him. And that's the setting that we see. That's the backdrop that we see in Micah chapter 6. Now, we see the court case. And then when we get into the next few verses, they're really the opening statements. So when you go into a court, the first things that you do is you would have the opening statements. So you would have the opening statements from God himself. So Micah... Micah gives an opening statement uh, from God. And this is what we see um, in verses 3 and 4. It says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent you Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. And remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what the Lord was doing through the prophet Micah in this opening statement is he was simply saying this, oh my people, I have done every single thing I promised I would do. I brought you people that would help you in your distress that would help you lead you out of your slavery. I, I protected you at every single turn. There were times that you were about to be cursed and I stepped in and provided blessings from you instead. And then he said this, I was with you from Shittim to Gilgal. And you may think, well, what, what is the big deal about those two places? Well, Shittim is the last place. You've got to be really careful how you say that. Uh, is, the, is the last place that the children of Israelite camped before they walked on the dry Jordan River into the promised land. Gilgal is the first place that they camped once they came in to the promised land. Now, this started, his opening statement started as, I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And then it ended with, remember that I fulfilled my promise when I led you from Shittim to Gilgal and you crossed the dry Jordan River. God was saying, I've done every single thing I told you I would do. There's not one promise I haven't kept. And it's almost as if God was saying, what else can I do to capture your heart? I desperately want your heart. I desperately want more than just this distant relationship where I give you things and protect you and save you. I desperately want this intimate relationship with you. What else can I do to get that? That's what I'm after. That's what I want. Now, I think this is relevant to us today. I think God desperately wants our heart. 
And I believe that we see it in this passage of Scripture. So we have God's opening statement, but then we have the people's response to it. All right? So let's look at the people's response. So if we go um, to verse 5, it says, uh, actually verse um, 6, it says, What shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? This is the people's response. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, a calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn uh, for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people were saying this, hey God, we want to put you in a box over here. We wanted you to continue to give us your blessings, but we want to live our own life. So what else do we have to do to appease you and then it just lists things and it even lists should I give my firstborn son that was rhetorical there was no way in the world that they were willing to do that they were just simply saying what can I do God to keep you happy so I can continue to live the life I want to live and I wonder if I do that I wonder if we do that Okay, so I'll just go to church, God. I'll just do that, or I'll I'll pray before the meals, or I'll even read my Bible, and that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't get anything out of it, but I'll just do these rites of passage or these rote memorization acts just to appease you. And I believe God is just saying, I don't want that. In fact, in another, uh, another prophet, it says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. And that's exactly the sentiment that we get out of this passage of Scripture. And God is just saying, what else must I do to capture your attention? Because that's what I desperately want. I want you. I don't want you to do things. I want you. Think about Mary and Martha. What was Martha doing? Well, she was busy making preparations and she was tending and taking care of so many things. But what was Mary doing? At the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus said? This is the most important thing. And I think that God just wants us at his feet in an intimate relationship with him and worshiping him. And then we get to verse 8. And verse 8 really is the meat of this passage, right? And so, so you have God's opening statements. You have the people's response. And then Micah in verse 8 says, uh, I, God doesn't want that. God doesn't want all these sacrifices. He's already told you what is good, and this is what he wants. So let's read verse 8 together. It says this. Uh, It says, he has shown you, O man, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you're one that just likes to write in your Bible, man, I would write that. I would circle that. I would star that. I would highlight it. I would underline it. I would do anything you can to remember that. Because there's a word in that, in those few verses, a few words that says, this is what the Lord requires of you. And that word require, if you look at the, the original language, it is a very interesting word, that require. You know what it means in the original language? It means require. It means require. So if you are to be a believer in Jesus, and I believe that this is true 
today, just like it was for the children of Israel, I believe the truth is absolutely the same. If you were to call yourself a believer of Jesus, a child of God, one has been mercifully saved by grace and you follow him, I believe it is a requirement, not a choice, not man if I feel like it, but it is a requirement, absolute biblical requirement that you were to do these things. And these three things simply are that you humbly walk with the Lord your God. Number two, that you act justly. And number three, that you love kindness and you love mercy. Now, what I like to call this is really the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament greatest commandment and second greatest commandment that was actually taken from Deuteronomy, the Shema, that you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So what is the greatest commandment? That you love him more than anything else. That he is the object of your devotion. What is the second greatest commandment? That you love your neighbor as yourself. So really, when you look at the scripture, you never can get away from those two things. You will see those two commandments all throughout the scripture over and over and over. Number one, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Number two, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so I call Micah 6, 8 really the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament greatest commandment and second greatest commandment. One of the beautiful things about the scripture is I believe the scripture interprets itself, right? So if you want to understand what one verse of the Bible means, go to another verse of the Bible that talks about it and it illuminates it. And I believe that is true for this today. So if you are wondering, how do I love in Matthew 22? How do I love the Lord my God with all my soul strength? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? I believe Micah 6.8 gives us a window on how to do that. First, it says that you are to humbly walk with the Lord. And I believe that humble, that word humble is extremely significant and important here because this is our position so think about Mary where was Mary she was at the feet where where should we be we are in a humble position it, it's it is a God first position it is not a I just want to take care of myself and make sure that I'm satisfied and happy and everything's going right in my world no it is a God first position. So the very first thing that we have to do, we have to understand is how and examine is how is our individual relationship with the Lord. Not a faith that our parents gave us, not the heritage of our grandparents, not what my spouse wants me to be, but how is your specific relationship with the Lord individually? How is that? And you may just want to spend some time with that and wonder, where, where am I with the Lord today? It, am I really walking in step with him? Am I really put myself at the right humble position? And what we have to understand is this, this is linear. What I mean by that is this has to happen first. See, if you jump over loving the God to go to loving your neighbor, it doesn't work. 
it may work for a while, but you will become burnt out. Your relationship will be stale. It will be, it'll be duty. It'll be difficult. But see, your relationship with the Lord should fuel, should bring gasoline to your love for your neighbor. You have to have the humility and the relationship first. And then out comes that, is that you will love your neighbor. Now, how do you love your neighbor? Well, Micah 8, 6, 8 teaches us that. Number one, you're to do two things. You're to act justly and you are to love mercy. You are to do both of these, justice and mercy. Now, if God was just with every single one of us, what would happen? Well, we would be blotted out because of the sin in our life, right? But because of God's mercy, he sent Jesus to walk this earth incarnate to live a life that was sinless that led him to the cross that he died a horrible death and paid the penalty that we should have paid and so there's justice but there's also mercy and they work together and through that we get our salvation Now, I want us to understand how that should play out in our individual relationships with others. So how can we, how can we uh, act justly in our relationships and how can we show mercy and kindness and compassion in our relationships, all right? So to do that, I just want to tell you a story from a book. I don't even remember the name of the book, but there's an illustration and a book that I read that I believe really clearly articulates the difference of just living justly and also living with kindness and mercy, all right? So there's this guy. Think about this beautiful mountain home and think of that there is this river that runs underneath, right? Right beside this house and there is this guy that every morning he would love to go out onto his deck and get his warm cup of tea or his cup of coffee and he would like to just read the paper and listen to the beautiful birds singing and he did it every morning and so he got his morning tea and he went out and he sat down on his balcony and he looked down to the roaring river that was beneath his house and he saw a man that was at the river one specific morning And when he was there, that man was beaten and bloody and bruised. And and he was in bad, bad shape. And so this man got up from where he was sitting and he walked down to that riverbank and he tended to this man's wounds. In fact, he brought this man inside his own home. He gave this man some hot soup and gave him a warm shower and a nice, comfortable bed. Gave him some clothes to put on and he cared for him. He had compassion for him. He had mercy for him, right? He showed kindness to him. The next morning he gets up and he goes back out to his balcony and he sits there and he looks down and there is a second man on the riverbank that was in the same condition the first man was the day before. And he walked down and he did the same thing for the second man that he did for the first man. Brought him into the home, gave him a nice warm meal, gave him a nice warm shower, took care of his wounds, bandaged him up, gave him new clothes, gave him a comfortable bed, had compassion and mercy on him. The third day, you guessed it, it's the same thing. 
It's a third man on the riverbank that is in the same condition as man number one and man number two. He did nothing different. He walked down. He bandaged his wounds. He took care of him. He brought him inside, gave him warm soup. He showed compassion and mercy, but he did something different that day. He did not stop there. He walked back out of his house. He walked back down to the riverbank. He stood on the riverbank. He looked down the river. He looked up the river. And he had this thought. Maybe it's time that I begin to walk up the river and find out what's happening to these men that's causing them to get beat up. That's causing their clothes to be stripped off their body. That's causing them to be beaten and bloody and tired and famished. Maybe it's time I walk up the river, find out what's happening to them, and then do something about that. And help that. So that they don't have to be back on my riverbank bloody and beaten and bruised. And so the moment he turned and the moment he started to go upstream, that my friend, is justice. And we are called to do both. We are called to love mercy, kindness, and we are called to love justice. And that's how we communicate and give great pictures of our Heavenly Father to a world that desperately needs to know it, right? So the next few verses just give very clear examples of how the children of Israel that day were not doing these things. In fact, what they were doing is they were cheating their friends. They were cheating their co-workers. They were cheating their neighbors. They were not doing these things. And then, it's a beautiful passage, and then it talks about, uh, in verse 13, It talks about a consequence. Now, if this is a requirement, then if you don't do this, it makes sense that there would actually be a consequence, right? And so if you do not do these things, there is actually a consequence for us. And we see this consequence in verses 13 through 15. Read it with me. It says this, that therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up and save nothing. Because of what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press the olives, but not uh, get the oil, use the oil. You will crush the grapes, but never drink the wine. The consequence is, if we don't love justice and act mercy and kindness, the consequences, the consequences is that we will never fully be satisfied in our relationship with the Lord. We'll wake up one day and we'll say, is this all there is? Is there, is there more? To our relationship with the Lord. We'll work tirelessly. But we'll never. We'll never experience the benefit of that. We'll eat. But we'll never be full. We'll trample the olives. We'll never get the oil. We'll trample the grapes. We'll never drink the wine. So I believe it's very clear. That if you don't do these things. You will never experience the fullness. Of what Christ has to offer. And satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord. The, the crazy thing about this is. Is I believe there are men and women. 
all across America and perhaps in England as well that are not satisfied with their relationship with the Lord, but the crazy thing is they don't even realize it. They don't know it. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it what? To the full. I believe there is a fullness of a relationship with the Lord, of walking in a humble step with him and serving our neighbors and, uh, and practicing justice and kindness and mercy. When those work in concert together, I believe it takes us to another relationship with the Lord that we can't experience without doing that. And, and if we don't do that, we settle for a much less version of our relationship with Christ than he wants to give us. Much less. I want to illustrate this with this story and then I'm done. Uh, there was one morning and I used to live in, uh, in, a, in San Antonio, Texas, all right? Outside of San Antonio. It's a little German town called Bernie, all right? And, uh, and there um, I was the youth pastor and I got a phone call in the morning like at 4 a.m. Anytime a minister gets a call at 4 a.m., typically it's not a good thing, right? Uh, but I get a phone call at 4 a.m. And when I pick up the phone, the only thing I hear on the other end is it's a great day to fly, and when he told me, this guy named Bill was on the, he didn't have to tell me who he was. I knew immediately who he was. And all he said, uh, he said, it's a great day to fly. And I was like, full alert. I said, okay, when and where? What, when and where? When and where? He said, meet me at the church in 10 minutes. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I jumped up, got dressed as fast as I could, jumped in my car, went to the church immediately. Um, I think I brushed my teeth. I think I did that. Um, went to the church immediately, got in his car, drove out to another town called Kerrville. At the airport in Kerrville, there was this beautiful jet fighter plane that sat on the runway at the Kerrville airport. It was actually a British stock Cold War trainer jet. So it was side by side and, and instead of front and back. And so I had an opportunity to fly in that plane with him that day. And it was the most exhilarating, crazy experience I think I've ever had in my life. So we get up in this jet and he puts me in the seat and he puts straps over my shoulders and around my waist and up my legs. And then there was like this little disc that he put them all into and pulled the lever down and it all just went really tight around me. And then there was this little red handle right here. And, and he said, now this is the emergency eject handle. He said, no, it's fully functional. He said, there's rockets under your seat. I've disengaged those because we're not going to be flying combat. But if we get in trouble, we're going to use the safety mechanism. And so what's going to happen is if we get in trouble when we're in the air, uh, I'm going to pop the canopy and I want you just to jump out of the plane. And I'm like, I, I don't think I'm going to do that. He said, well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull the handle and I'm going to turn the plane upside down and you're just going to fall out, right? And you know what he said about these rockets? He said, these rockets are so powerful that if you were just sitting on the runway, I could pull that button and those rockets would throw you high enough in the air for your canopy, your parachute to deploy and you would hit the ground safely. And I was like, man, this is serious business. It was unbelievable. And so we start taking off. And the G-forces that I experienced on that takeoff were unlike anything I had ever experienced before. 
And it was exhilarating and fun, and I loved every minute of it. And we got in the air, and we began to do these loops, like, all the way around. And then we began to do these barrel rolls where our plane would just roll sideways. Now, you do a couple of different things. Remember, I had the exact same controls that he had. So there was, like, a joystick in between us, and you could just hold it to the left, and then you would just barrel roll to the left. Or if you just kind of tapped it, then you would just kind of do, like, a quarter of a turn each time right? And we did all of that. And then he said, okay, now it's time for you to fly it. Are you ready? And I said, are you kidding me? Yes, I'm ready. Let's go. And he said, okay. He, and he taught me what to do. He said, this is how you look for the horizon when you fly, all right? And this is how, when you're upside down, this is how you keep your senses. And these are your gauges. And so he said, okay, it's your turn. And so I took that joystick and I pulled it back towards me. And that plane just went straight up went to the top and I was completely inverted and then he said now go left and so I hit left and I just began to barrel row out of it it was the most beautiful crazy thing I've ever experienced I loved every minute of it I experienced flying like I've never experienced it before and then it came down for us to land we landed safely I got out of the plane I kissed the ground all that was beautiful and good but I want to tell you something um, I love to fly. I mean, I really love to fly. Uh, so when I, like when I, I fly, I don't fly tons, but when I fly, I love to get a window seat because I like to see outside and I like to try to find my house when I'm flying over Dallas and I like to find the landmarks and, and if I'm flying somewhere, I try to try to figure out where I am. If it's turbulent, it's the better for me. I love it. Like I love to see the clouds, but I want to tell you something. I just thought I liked flying before that day. Because I experienced flying in a totally new, different way than I ever experienced before. Flying was a totally different for me now. And you know what? I never realized what I was missing. I never realized what I was missing. I believe that is exactly true of Micah 6, 8. Because I believe that God has called us to live in such an intimate, humble relationship with him that spurs us on to love our neighbors, that spurs us on to display compassion and mercy but also spurs us on to love justice and to act justly and do the right thing. And when I believe when these two things are in perfect uh, harmony with one another, that we give great pictures of who Jesus Christ is. And when we do that, I believe that our relationship with the Lord is enhanced in a way that we've never experienced before. And I hope that's real to you. And I, and I wonder this morning, um, just, I just ask you two things, just two points of application. Number one, how is your relationship with the Lord? Is, is it one that's duty? Or, or is it one that you are in an intimate, everyday, reading the word, walk with him? And number two, how are you loving on your neighbors? Everybody lives somewhere. Everybody has neighbors. 
whether it be neighbors in your neighborhood next to you, whether it be at your office, there's people that you see every day in your office complex where you work. Maybe it's students in school. Who are the people that God has placed you in the midst of every single day? Answer this question. Who are the people that you are more prepared because of the proximity that you live with them to bring the gospel to them than anybody else on this planet? Who has God given you that you are more positioned to bring the gospel to than anyone else on this planet? That may be why God has them in your life. So when you begin to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, and when you begin to see others like he sees them and love them and with compassion and you act justly with them, you begin to give great pictures of the kingdom and you begin to experience a relationship with the Lord that's just a totally different level. And I hope, my friends, that you experience that. Many of you probably already are. But I hope that this is encouragement that spurs you on to that. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women, these boys and girls. Uh, Father, um, I love just hearing uh, the laughter and the footsteps of children. Uh, Father, um, uh, I'm just reminded in the scripture where it says uh, that we are to be like them and that you love them. And so, Father, as we think about having an intimate relationship with you, I just pray that you would give us the faith of a child. Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that you would bring us to an intimate relationship with you, maybe that we've never had or maybe that we haven't had in a long, long time. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the men and women that you have placed in our life, that you want us to give great glimpses of your kingdom to. Help us to be merciful. Help us to live justly. Show us what that's like, Father. And then when we do that, Allow us to experience a true abundance of a relationship with you, I ask. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.